welcome everyone to the Historical Materialism podcast, episode four. Today we are talking about Marxism and ecology. My name is Lucas Lotus. And I'm Ashok Kumar. This is the Historical Materialism podcast, which is, you know, Historical Materialism is a, a journal. We're also, we run a, a book series and and uh, we have a conference in a number of different places. We pretty much engage with critical Marxist thought. And this year's um, the conference is back in central London, um, November 10th to 13th, entitled Facing the Abyss, an Epoch of Permanent War and Counter-Revolution. Please come through if you can. And the podcast is basically a chance for us to have a kind of in-depth discussion with an author of an article in the most recent issue of the journal. We've done previous episodes on political Marxism, on the economics of imperialism, and on the political economy of fossil fuels. The article that we're discussing today will be made available open access, so we encourage all of you to download and read it and share it. Today we're uh, really grateful to have John Bellamy Foster, who is a professor emeritus of sociology at the University of Oregon. He's also an editor of Monthly Review. His recent book, The Return of Nature, has won a series of awards, and HM published the Deutsche Memorial Prize lecture in our journal, and that's the sort of the basis of discussion uh, today. So thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. We can kind of just get started. Maybe if you wanted to just say a few words about the kind of overall argument of the of the article of the lecture what's the key message well my book uh, marx's ecology which was written in 2000 was about um, marx's relation to ecology which came out of his materialism and how that was related to the development of ecology in his time and uh, his central concepts um, like the metabolic rift in this respect and a very big part of Marx's ecology also dealt with uh, Darwin and Marx's relation to Darwin. The Return of Nature, uh, my, my book, Return of Nature, which came out in 2020, carries the story forward from the death of Marx and Darwin in 1882 and 1883. Darwin died in 1882, Marx in 1883, up to the development of the modern environmental movement, essentially. Those books are connected. The return of nature, as was indicated, won the Deutscher Memorial Prize. And my lecture, my Deutscher lecture, is entitled The Return of the Dialectics of Nature, because very much a very big part of the return of nature was about how the dialectics of nature developed most fully in Engels uh, in classical Marxism, was carried forward by uh, later thinkers, particularly scientists, but also cultural theorists and how it influenced the development of ecology. And there has been a, a big divide in Marxism over the dialectics of nature. And uh, the return of the dialectics of nature is really about how we are now reassessing this in terms of modern ecological crisis and the rediscovery of Marxian ecological thought. Thanks, John, for that. I, I, I kind of want to get a little bit more deeper into some of the concepts that you just brought up. Can you explain a little bit more what you mean by the dialectics of nature? And can you explain the metabolic rift a little bit more and, and, and how these two relate? I mean, the dialectics of nature itself is obviously complex. That's, that's what it's all about, complexity. The best way to understand it is that uh, the, in, particularly in 19th century science, 
there was a very a mechanistic uh, scientific view arose. In fact, you, you could say it arose in this, the, the scientific revolution of the 17th century and carried through to the 19th century, a very mechanistic approach to science where everything was influenced by Newtonian science, notions of regularity and continuity and nature was passive but mechanical in character, very positivistic notion is, uh, of nature. This actually penetrated into uh, socialist thought, too. You had uh, socialists who were approaching materialism in a mechanical way, and you had you had a scientific ma- materialism, not necessarily socialist, that was very mechanistic. And in this, this context, Marx and Engels emphasized the dialectical character of nature coming out of um, Hegel, but, but giving it a materialist interpretation. And in these terms, uh, we can see dialectics, dialectics of nature is all about uh, contingency, change, evolution, interrelationships, you know, interpenetration, evolution, dynamics. It's very different than a mechanical viewpoint. In fact, contemporary science has incorporated very, not consciously exactly, but uh, has incorporated a dialectical worldview to a large extent. And it's moved away from the mechanism of the 19th century to a very large extent. So, but, but a dialectical view sees nature as developing of itself in evolutionary terms, in terms of change, mediation, conflict, interrelationships, reciprocity, and repulsion, and so on. Nature then is not uh, simply mechanical. It's um, an active force uh, in, in change, and human beings are part of it. Uh, so uh, when we talk about nature in the scientific sense, and also in Marx and Engels' sense, human beings are part of nature. They're an emergent part of nature, and, and emergence is a very, very big part of a dialectical point of view. Human beings are part of nature. They, uh, we have to conform to nature's laws, as we say, but there are also uh, emergent social laws uh, that govern society, our, our lives as well. And so we can't approach uh, humanity in a reductionist way as though it's simply determined by natural factors, but neither are we free from it. So dialectics of nature is concerned with these complex uh, relations of um, the natural world. Marx talked about the universal metabolism of nature. Nowadays, we talk about the Earth system. They're basically dialectical formulations. How does the metabolic rift then emerge in in Marx, in Marxism, and how does it then relate to that kind of dialectical view of nature? Well, Marx was was a political economist, but he was also a a materialist thinker. And uh, his materialism embraced not only what we call the materialist conception of history, but also the materialist conception of nature, of natural science. And he wrote his dissertation on the philosophy of nature, on on Epicurus, uh, the ancient philosopher. And this notion of the materialist conception of nature was very much a part of Marx's thought. That's not where he did his major scientific work. He did his major scientific work within on the materials conception of history, the, but the materials conception of natural scientific conception of uh, the world as whole, of, of the material world as a whole, underlay all that he did. 
And so uh, Marx, when he is deal dealing with his political economy, if you look at capital, for example, there are references to science all the time. It's right through the text, right through the footnotes. And this isn't metaphorical use of science. It's actually connecting what is going on in his analysis of, of capital and social relations to uh, the material relations and the relations of nature, to what he called uh, the universal metabolism of nature. So this is um, intrinsic to his thought. In analyzing and developing the critique of capitalism, Marx, he was influenced by Justice von Liebig, the German chemist, agricultural chemist, among others. Uh, and he was influenced by Liebig's uh, analysis of the destruction of the soil or degradation of the soil in Europe in the late 1850s, early 1860s, uh, when Liebig was writing his works on effects of industrial capitalism on the soil. And what Liebig explained and what Marx took up was that the the soil was being degraded because the, the major nutrients of the soil, we can think of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, but there are others as well, were being removed from the soil and in the form of food and fiber that was being shipped to the new industrial centers, hundreds, maybe thousands, in some cases thousands of miles from the uh, rural areas. And uh, the nutrients were um, ending up as pollution in the cities the nutrients, the soil nutrients, were not returning to the soil. So the soil was depleted and agriculture began to enter into a crisis. And Marx was very concerned about the soil crisis. And at the time, they were having to, as a result of this, they had to import bones from the Napoleonic battlefields and from the catacombs of Europe to England to replenish the soil. And they had to get guano from Peru and move it massively, move all of this bird guano, bird droppings from Peru, which was the best chemical fertilizer, natural chemical fertilizer of the time. They had to ship it back to England and to Europe, other parts of Europe, to replenish the soil. So there was this, this um, serious ecological crisis, which of course capitalism was attempting to manage at the time. And Marx understood this as the robbing of the earth. He talked about uh, the ir irreparable rift in the interdependent process of the social metabolism between humanity and nature. And we've ended up calling that the metabolic rift to um, understand his ecological crisis theory. And we've discovered that this actually permeated uh, Marx's thought, that the concept of metabolism permeated his thought, that he carried on additional ecological research. There is an enormous amount of, of work there that Marx did that we've been able to draw upon, mostly in terms of a, a methodology that allows us to inquire into the ecological problem in a way that's very different than standard ecological stand, uh, science or standard mainstream ecological critique, in that in this analysis, the critique of the political economy of capitalism and the critique of the ecological crisis of capitalism and the ecological implications of capitalism are all tied together. They're, they're seen as completely interrelated in a systemic sense, which is different than any other analysis that we have currently and allows us to look at the ecological problem in a much more holistic sense and a much more socially grounded sense. 
Before we move on to thinking about various different ways that Marxism and different Marxists have then thought differently about this question, I just wanted to ask if you could say a little bit about what was the situation before the emergence of the metabolic rift? So in a sense, you're saying this comes about as a result of changes to, well, the emergence of capitalism, urbanization, uh, changes in the mode of production. What What's the situation before you have that soil depletion and, and that rift emerging? Is it a much more harmonious equilibrium relationship between human society and nature, or, or is there already the emergence of a problem I think that there has always been a, a set of contradictions between human beings and nature. I mean, it's, it's a part of human development that we appropriate from nature and that this has consequences and that it permeates particularly the whole history of class societies, which maybe like the last 5,000 years, we see uh, ecological crises of one kind or another. So I wrote about this, um, about the long history of ecological crisis in my book, The Vulnerable Planet, in 1994. But um, capitalism adds an intensity and a systematic character and acceleration to all of these contradictions uh, that is qualitatively different from what came before. We see, even in the early stages of capitalism, of course, there is what we call the expropriation of nature, really following Marx's use of the concept of expropriation. That was very uh, widespread and had damaging effects. Uh, we can see that, say, from the period of colonization on. But the metabolic rift caused by industrial agriculture was in a product of industrialization. So it, it's a, a qualitatively new phase, just as the Industrial Revolution was itself. Um, thanks, John. Could you um, could you explain the divisions and tensions within Marxism uh, on the questions of nature and ecology, for example, between sort of Western and Soviet Marxism, and which other sort of schisms existed or exist today? Let's start with a Soviet and and uh, Western Marxist split. Basically, this goes back to the 1920s, 1923, his uh, Lukács' history and class consciousness. And in footnote six, a very short little footnote, Lukács indicates that he doesn't agree with Engels on the dialectics of nature, that Engels had followed Hegel too uncritically on that. Lukács distanced himself from the dialectics of nature there. The statement is very ambiguous in many ways and not fully developed. It's a footnote of, you know, maybe 10 or 12 lines. And yet it was taken up by Western Marxism and treated as though Lukács had provided a critique of the dialectics of nature, which he had not. He had a footnote with a few lines where he said that he didn't follow Engels exactly on this. But it became really the most important basis of the Western Marxist philosophical tradition. So when I first took a class in critical theory in, in graduate school, the, first, the very first sentence practically was, there is no such thing as a dialectics of nature. I mean, this was fundamental to, in defining the Western Marxist philosophical tradition. This doesn't mean, to use Western Marxist in this sense, doesn't mean that all Western Marxists believe that. It's, it actually is a philosophical tradition, but was very pervasive. It encompassed the Frankfurt School, 
thinkers like Sartre in France and a very large part of the British Marxist intelligentsia is very pervasive within the a Marxist philosophical tradition that you couldn't speak of the of the dialectics of nature. Helena Sheehan said that the one thing that the Trotskyist tradition and and the Communist Party agreed on was in defending the notion of the dialectics of nature. But uh, people within Trotskyist tradition were split on this too. But the Western Marxist philosophical tradition rejected it. Basically, the argument was that dialectics had to be fully reflexive, that it had to be a subject-object identity, as Lukács had discussed in History and Class Consciousness, that the proletariat had represented the, the identical subject, the personification of the identification of the subject and object, and that reflexivity was was uh, the core of dialectics and created a, a kind of closed system of internal relations which um, could only exist within the context of human consciousness. So it, a lot of it had a very idealist thrust as well. But um, Hegel actually had a dialectical approach to nature, even though he was an idealist thinker. And Marx and Engels did as well. This uh, was a very big aspect of Western Marxism. And, and one of the reasons why it became so prominent is that it differentiated them from Soviet Marxism. Soviet Marxists adhered to the notion of the dialectics of nature, and it was fundamental to their approach to science. Well, the Western Marxist philosophical tradition rejected the dialectics of nature. So this created a huge rift. Now, in the Soviet Marxism, the dialectics of nature, however, came to be increasingly interpreted in mechanical and positivistic terms from the mid-1930s on. And, uh, I mean, it lost a lot of its significance philosophically because it was treated in a reductionist way in characteristic of, of Soviet thought in that period. But nonetheless, they held on to the notion of the dialectics of nature it was important in the development of, of Soviet science. Well, Western Marxist philosophical tradition became very anti-science, and they basically seeded science in the natural world to positivism and had the view that nature was passive and mechanical and had nothing to do with really human beings, except that we used our technology to dominate nature. Uh, what this meant was that both sides in this conflict had broken, <laughs> ruptured the connection between Marxism and ecology. Uh, this was obvious in terms of the Western Marxist philosophical tradition because they no longer had a, a way of dealing with nature. They relied on an epistemological view that tended towards what Roy Boscar called the epistemic fallacy, that is, ontology, the nature of being, is was subordinated, subsumed by epistemology, our uh, way of thinking, our the philosophy of knowledge. And so they, um, they didn't deal with ontological material aspects at all, and this too was part of the separation from, from nature and the natural conditions of human life. The Soviet tradition under Stalin had a different way of destroying ecology. Uh, they, the Soviet Union had been a leading uh, society in terms of the development of ecological thought in the 1920s. They were the pioneers. could give you all sorts of examples, but this is you know, where, where a lot of the breakthroughs occurred. 
But uh, Stalin ended up executing uh, almost all the leading colleges, or they died in the purge. And uh, this is a way of destroying a science. Obviously, you couldn't have uh, much of an ecological uh, conception if, if all your leading ecological thinkers are killed off. This had a lot to do with, um, well, internal struggles in the, the Soviet Union, but the ecological thinkers tended to uh, be opposed to Lysenkoism of the period. I mean, many of the important ecological thinkers were on the other side of that controversy. They also tended to be more critical of the way industrialization was being carried out and the consequences for agriculture. They wanted to limit industrialization in some ways, and they were executed. So they, in the Soviet Union, too, there was... Um, kind of a, a sin against ecology. And there was a persistence of ecology within Marxism elsewhere, in Britain particularly. But all this damaged uh, Marxism's relation to ecology, not fatally, because uh, socialist thinker thinkers still remained the kind of pioneers in ecological development. But it took a more circuitous path, and it was removed from the uh, major Marxist movement of the time. Could you explain a little bit to the listeners what were the kind of reasons for why Lukács, for example, says we can't, cannot understand nature in a dialectical relationship? Nature is devoid of a subject or some kind of subjective agency. Is that the explanation? The statement that he made in that famous footnote six in history and class consciousness was critical of Engels' approach to the dialectics of nature. But it's incorrect that Lukács ever rejected the notion of the dialectics of nature because later on in history and class consciousness, he, he refers to the merely objective dialectics of nature as a rational and necessary approach using practically the same words as Engels, referring to a merely objective dialectics of nature. But for, for Lukács, dialectics is only fully developed when you have this perfect reflexivity within the, the identical subject-object relations, which he thought in the time of history of class consciousness, the proletariat represented. That really is at the level of what we would call the dialectics of society. And talking about dialectics in terms of consciousness and society, leaving nature out of the picture. So he was actually pointing to kind of a hierarchy of what I call a hierarchy of dialectics. There is an, a merely objective dialectics of nature that grounds things, but it's not as dialectical. It's not as fully dialectical as as a identical subject object dialectics, which you, you get in society. Now, uh, just a few years after he uh, had written History in Class Consciousness, he wrote his, his Talism document, which we recently re rediscovered, Verso published. In that, he had moved on. He had basically discovered Marx's notion of metabolism and its relation to labor. And so he's already, he's already talking about a different uh, approach to the question just a few years after, uh, after history and class consciousness. And this carried through to the end of his life uh, and became a preoccupation for the end of his life. You see it in the 1967 preface to history and class consciousness. You see it in, in Lukács' ontology, his, his social ontology. 
And what he started to focus on was um, what I call the dialectics of nature and society. That is, if you think of the merely objective dialectics of nature, that is, nature's dialectics apart from society. So you can think of how um, the natural world existed even before human beings, and yet it involved history, evolution, change, contingency, attraction and repulsion, systems, dynamics, all of these things. It wasn't uh, simply understandable in mechanical terms. So there you can think of a dialectics of nature of nature itself, right? Quite apart from human beings, the merely objective dialectics of nature. And then you can think, remember, the merely subjective dialectics of nature. But what Lukács started to focus on and what Marx had focused on was what I call the dialectics of nature and society, which mediated between the two. So that Actually, we understand the world and we understand, insofar as we do understand it, we understand the material world, the material universe, because we are part of it and because we're sensual beings, because we interact with the world, because we're objective beings, which means that we have our objects outside of ourselves. We interact, we learn, we change in the world, in uh, the material world in ways, and interact with nature. And we learn about nature's laws or nature's um, processes in that way. And that's how our science has, has developed. And so this, um, this is the realm of the, the dialectics of nature and society. And what Marx introduced the concept of metabolism to understand the dialectics of nature and society. And Marx had this notion of the universal metabolism of nature, that is, nature as a whole, the, the whole natural universe. And also, the, the, he also introduced the notion of the social metabolism. The social metabolism was how uh, human beings interacted with nature through our production, through our labor and production process. So it was a specifically human relation to nature was the social metabolism. And when the human social metabolism comes into conflict with the universal metabolism of nature, you have when human production or the social metabolism comes into conflict with the universal metabolism of nature, we end up with what Marx conceived as a metabolic rift or an alienated mediation between nature and society. The social metabolism is really the um, way in which uh, human beings uh, mediate between nature and society, or the way in which production mediates between humanity and nature is really the way to understand it. And an alienated form of that, an alienated social metabolism, an alienated production is in conflict with the universal metabolism of nature, and you end up with an ecological crisis. Lukács didn't develop all of that, but he did focus in his later work through his social ontology on how labor labor had to be understood in terms of the social metabolism and that this was the connection between human beings and nature. So he developed this kind of realm of the dialectics of nature and society. In Marx himself, it was more fully developed and also included an ecological argument. Now, Lukács is not a Western Marxist then in quite the same sense as the Western Marxists who said they were following him. So I sometimes call Western Marxist philosophical tradition the post-Lukatschian tradition because they were influenced by, by uh, Lukács, but they, they departed from him rather than following him on this. 
just like we say, post-Marxists are not really, they're influenced by Marx, but they've left Marxism. I mean, some of us would call them ex-Marxists, maybe, not post-Marxists, <laughs> but, um, but that's yeah. a whole other discussion. Could you explain to the listeners then whether you think the metabolic rift does or doesn't capture the scale of the present climate catastrophe? Obviously, there have been massive changes in the relationship between humans and nature from kind of the onset of industrialization until today, even though we still live in um, in various ways, obviously, within the same kind of economic system of production and, and distribution and so on. But it, has there been a kind of qualitative difference in the function of the metabolic rift or is it merely a kind of quantitative one? I would say it was both quantitative and qualitative. For Marx, um, the notion of metabolism entered into his thought early in the 1850s. And he had a friend who was also a communist who was part of um, the clone, clone communist trial and who died early, Roland Daniels, who was a scientist. Well, he was a, he was a physician scientist, Roland Daniels, and he wrote a book called Microcosmos, which, as far as we, as far as I know, had only one reader, and that was Karl Marx. And until the 1980s, when when Microcosmos was was actually published in Germany, in in Microcosmos, Roland Daniels had taken the concept of metabolism, which was had evolved out of cell biology and was being used at the time by other thinkers like Liebig, and he developed it into a kind of a systems almost a kind of rudimentary system psychology, how the connections between animal life and plant life and how it was all systematically organized. And Marx took this concept and used it as a systems concept, as his most general systems concept, but eventually he reintegrated with the ecological notions in his thought. And the reason this is, is so important is that the concept of metabolism became the basis of ecosystem analysis, which is really the fundamental basis of our ecological thinking. The word ecology arose with Heckel in in, the 1860s, but it wasn't really a prominent concept until the 20th century. And the early ecological analysis was actually developed through the, the notion of metabolism and Marx played a significant role in this, so that these notions carried forward. Marx's close friend, E. Ray Lancaster, who was also Charles Darwin and Thomas Huxley's protege and the leading uh, biologist in, in Britain in the late 19th and early 20th century. You know, he read Marx's Capital, he was friends with Marx, and he developed the most powerful ecological critique in Britain in the late 19th and early 20th century. And uh, he was the head of the Natural History Museum. He was right at the head at top of, of British science. And he had a student, George Arthur Tansley, who became Britain's leading plant ecologist and, and the founder of ecology in, in Britain. And Tansley introduced the concept of ecosystem, but at the root of this is the notion of metabolism, which had been also um, very integrated with thermodynamics. And so the concept of metabolism was at the base basis of the concept of ecosystem. And this has carried forward to the present day. So in the context of the climate crisis, 
crisis is really in the context of the climate crisis and the um, recognition that that anthropogenic forces are now affecting the planet or the major the major forces affecting the planet that earth system analysis arose the early development of earth system analysis really was in the soviet union where the biosphere concept was uh, utilized was in, you know, really developed by vernadsky and and was employed by uh, the major marxist thinkers like bukharin and so on So out of the notion of the biosphere, we eventually get um, Earth system analysis. And the way we understand Earth system is in terms of the Earth's metabolism. And so all of this is integrated, this sort of approach that that Marx had out of his dialectics is very closely related to um, how science has developed uh, this. And somewhat independently, but not entirely independently, because uh, Marxist thinkers played a core role in in development of these ideas all along, Marxist and socialist thinkers. So when we we analyze the, the problem of climate change, and based on the metabolic rift analysis, uh, my colleagues, Brett Clark and Richard York, wrote a very influential article on the carbon metabolism and explaining the climate change in terms of capitalism's disruption of the carbon metabolism in terms of using the methods of Marx's theory of metabolic rift, um, using that methodology. So it carries forward. It takes different forms, but the, the methodological analysis, the basic method and the understanding of how these various elements of ecology and society fit together and the dialectical aspects of it have been very important in being able to explain how capitalism is degrading the earth today and what we need to do about it. Yeah, thanks, John. I mean, kind of in that context, I was wondering if you could uh, explain how you understand the Anthropocene and, and can you sort of explain your distinction between epoch and age uh, within that context? Well, the scientific definition of the Anthropocene, it's not official yet because it's still working its way through the approval process. But but in terms of what the Anthropocene working group has developed, which is part of the official process, the way we understand the Anthropocene now within science is that it's defined as that epoch in which anthropogenic forces, for the first time in the 4.6 billion years of Earth history, have emerged as the primary forces in Earth system change. So that's the definition of it. And that's a a huge change from all previous Earth history, and it's a huge change from the Holocene of the last 11,700 years during which uh, civilization developed. Um, The Holocene epoch, I should say, of the last 11,700 years, civilization developed, the climate was fairly stable, but now anthropogenic forces, that is human forces, social forces, as opposed to non-anthropogenic forces, are now the major factor in Earth system change and are changing the Earth system at an accelerated rate, uh, more so than at any time in recorded Earth history. So this is this is a massive, significant um, change in terms of geology. 
Now, if we look at the Anthropocene itself, that concept, first of all, we have to note that there is, we can talk about an Anthropocene crisis that exists um, in the present day. Well, let let me backtrack a little bit and say, in terms of the dating of the Anthropocene, the Anthropocene Working Group dates it back to the the uh, 1950s, sometimes 1945, um, but more often the 1950s. That's when the Great Acceleration occurred with a massive acceleration in all forms of industrial production because you had the development of a real global economy emerging at that time and of all the environmental effects. But the um, um, foremost indicator of that is the radionuclides left over from from the above-ground nuclear tests in the 1950s. So we say the Anthropocene emerged in the um, 1950s. Incidentally, the, the modern environmental movement emerged at the same time, not coincidentally. But this immediately induced an, e- an ecological crisis, um, a planetary ecological crisis, which we sometimes call the Anthropocene crisis. And that was what the modern environmental movement was responding to, particularly, and it became immediately clear, even the the, um, the modern environmental movement actually grew out of the protests against the above-ground nuclear tests. That's what's the beginning. So these things coincide. So we have this Anthropocene crisis where anthropogenic factors are ex- accelerating the change of the Earth system, not in a planned way, but completely anarchically uh, through the force of capitalism. This has created a crisis. The most uh, obvious example is climate change. But we're crossing multiple planetary boundaries at the present time. So it's not just climate change. So you have, you have this situation of, of the Anthropocene. Now, if we go back to the, the definition of the Anthropocene, as anthropogenic factors for the first time in Earth's history, anthropogenic factors as opposed to non-anthropogenic factors being the main force in Earth system change, we realize, we have to realize that this is a product of industrial society as well as capitalism. It's a product of uh, the whole development of the economic system and the scale of our effects on the environment, as well as the, the metabolic rift, kind of crashing through uh, the barriers um, of um, nature's limits. We have to realize that this is going to persist, that we can't go back from industrial society. We have to have it in some way. So the um, we either end up with an Anthropocene extinction event, which is what we're heading towards now, where we have a massive die-off of uh, the human species and uh, many other species, complete catastrophe, or we find a way to develop a sustainable relation to the Earth, right? The Anthropocene uh, notion is going to be um, presented as a, a step to a further formal presentation in October or November by the Anthropocene Working Group. Meanwhile, trying to understand this, there's no doubt that about the significance, the importance of the concept of the Anthropocene. And you, you couldn't even have, they couldn't even have developed this concept fully without a concept of the Earth system. Although though the biosphere, the work on the biosphere in, in the Soviet Union had led to similar notions so they had developed a notion of the Anthropocene, sometimes called Anthropocene in the 
1920s in the Soviet Union. But at any rate, all of this analysis is based on our notion of the Earth system. And the concept of the Anthropocene is very important in terms of understanding where we are in the future in terms of geological history. But it doesn't bring in the social factors. We do recognize that the great acceleration is socially caused. We need to understand capitalism's role in this. Now, every geological epoch is divided into geological ages. Right now, we're not only in the Holocene, officially in the Holocene epoch, although scientists are saying it's really the Anthropocene at this point, but we, we're officially in the Meghalian age, which goes back about 4,500 years, when it's, it's supposed that certain civilizations were disrupted by, social, by um, climate change 4,500 years ago and in the Meghalian age. But every epic is divided into geological ages. But nobody had talked about, well, what is the first geological age of the Anthropocene? So uh, Brett Clark and I introduced this notion that the first geological age of the Anthropocene was the Capitolinian. We proposed that it be called the Capitolinian and that um, in conformity with the scientific nomenclature that was brought about by the Great Acceleration, the geological age of the Capitolinian coincides with the Great Acceleration. The cause of the Great Acceleration is basically global monopoly capitalism. And this coincided with the rise of the, the environmental movement and so on. We understand that the problem is, is not the Anthropocene, but it's the Capitolinian. And, and the Capitolinian is leading towards an Anthropocene extinction event. That Capitolinian, which is driven by the social system of capitalism, is um, leading us to an Anthropocene extinction event. And uh, we argued that we need a new geological age to emerge, a new interface between humanity and the Earth system, which would have to happen, optimally would have to happen around 2050, uh, which we said would be called the communion. We, we proposed the name communion for this future geological age, which um, after the words community, um, communal, and uh, commune and commons, you know, the idea of, of the communion. And that's what we, we should strive for, a new geological age that interfaced with the earth in a sustainable way in terms of, and this is all integrated with um, metabolic rift theory. The problem it was that we discovered, we published that in September 2021, then it turned out that Carl Soriano, a Spanish scientist, a geologist, and volcanologist had written an article for Geologica Acta, one of the world's leading geological journals, in 2020, in which he had proposed that the first geological age of the Anthropocene be named the Capitolian, using the same basic model that we had, or that the dating of it was different. Soriano is not only a major geologist I, in terms of his publications, I don't know all of his work in that respect, but he's, he's also a major Marxist theorist who works on dialectics and, and uh, has been influenced by Ilyenkov and employs the concept of the metabolic rift and everything. So uh, we're kind of merging our analysis now 
But this is um, a, a serious issue. You know, we, we can't uh, abandon the notion of the Anthropocene because it really tells us that we are in a situation where we have the responsibility for the Earth now and for sus- having a sustainable relation to the Earth. And otherwise, we'd face an Anthropocene extinction event. But we also need the notion of the geological age, which interfaces with our social analysis of capitalism and that points beyond our, our present system towards a more sustainable society. We've coalesced our analysis with, with Soriano's in the, the notes from the editors to the upcoming September issue of Month Review. And in the uh, upcoming October issue of Month Review, a major article by Soriano on all of this is going to be the review of the month. So we're pushing forward with this analysis at the present. That's great. We should uh, encourage all our listeners and we'll certainly ourselves be checking that out as well. Um, there have been many attempts within Marxism, also more broadly within kind of socialist proposals for how we can think about exiting this kind of age. So I'm thinking, for example, about degrowth or more recently, you know, there's been contributions around half-earth socialism or various kind of attempts to try and theorize a way out of this problem. Where would you say you stand in relation to those proposals or solutions? So specifically degrowth, but more generally, you know, do you think that these take us far enough? Do you think, um, are they, what are the potential problems with them? I've written on degrowth before the the problem is, and there are a lot of different tendencies within degrowth. And some, like Latouche, uh, sort of argue that um, degrowth is compatible with capitalism. I've criticized that because um, obviously, you know, that capitalism is a system of capital accumulation and economic growth in the narrow sense in which we talk about it is defined by capitalism, is basically modeled after capitalism. And it's a necessity of capitalism. In that sense, I, you know, I mean, there's some degrowth analyses that I be opposed to, but recently there has been more and more development of eco-socialist degrowth analyses, and um, we've published uh, some of them in, in Monthly Review. Um, Michael Levy and um, uh, Jason Hickel has been doing important work. You know, since the 1970s. Monthly Review has consistently argued that a system based on exponential growth is impossible into, you know, that there are limits to growth that we cannot um, science, um, even uh, critical economics um, tells us that that isn't possible. So um, we have to we have to face the reality. Degrowth itself, the, the term has frustrated people because let's say in the United States, it's very hard to say that you're, you're for degrowth flat out because um, people have been told all their lives that the only chance they have of getting anything is through the growth of the system. So it's it it's something that requires a lot of education and there are issues about how we present this. But there's no there's no um, question that it's necessary that we we actually have to in the wealthiest and um, the most the countries with the highest levels of of consumption like the United States that has to be reduced and this isn't just because of climate change it's because of our relation to the entire earth system and uh, all the planetary boundaries we're crossing 
we we basically have to reach a level of energy uses usage per capita which is somewhere around where Italy is now. And in terms of equity globally, we should strive that all countries, that some countries would move up to that level, other countries would move down to that level. But it's not exactly, it's not about um, abandoning industrial civilization altogether. It's it's like Italy is not, um, if you've ever been there, it's not a place that you would think of as just poverty-ridden or, um, or an unhappy place. Um, yeah, we have to do that because um, it's um, necessary in order to um, sustain life on Earth um, or life, um, most of existing life on Earth, including human civilization and, may, and, and even the human species. So that's a reality. But we talk about plant uh, degrowth. We we need some kind of planned degrowth. That's the thing. So we have to we have to introduce notions of planning in a new way, which only socialists can do. One of the things is that in the United States, um, we spend several trillion dollars a year on marketing, convincing people to buy things that they neither need nor want. Well, millions of people are homeless, without adequate food, without clean water. And uh, this is um, irrational and um, it's, it's getting worse. We create enormous amounts of waste uh, that um, are built into the capitalist economy where we don't take care of basic needs and the qualitative aspects of life. So the IPCC in its latest report actually the scientific report the the third part of the latest ipcc report on mitigation in the in the scientific report which was um leaked by scientific rebellion and then posted on the month review site in the scientific report they integrated jason hickel's notions and and so on they integrated scenarios they said the best scenario is the low energy approach and where waste is reduced and where the quality of life could be improved for everyone while the um, carbon emissions were drastically lowered. And this is the way to go. But the governments entered in and they cut all of that out of the summary for policymakers. You can find what the scientists said to say on the month review site. If you go to the official UN site, you only see what the, the governor, the censored version by the governments. But we do know that that is the route to take, um, and we need basically a more rational society. I mean, everybody in the world knows that bigger doesn't necessarily mean better, right? Lenin wrote an essay called, I mean, one of his last speeches was Smaller But Better. And uh, of course, uh, uh, we all know it was uh, small is beautiful. But there is, um, there are... Um, ways in which we can improve society while making it more sustainable. In fact, uh, sustainability, ecological sustainability and, and substantive equality actually come together. And for me, the two together really define socialism. Um, I wanted to uh, sort of address some of the maybe Marxist critiques of your work. Um, one of the fiercest critics of your approach is from Jason Moore. Uh, who questions what he calls a, a Cartesian dualism. And he says you kind of emphasize disruption and separation rather than reconfiguration. 
and unity. And so there's clearly a big cleavage in Marx's ecological approaches. And so I wanted to, I was hoping you could sort of lay out that debate and whether you think there are points of convergence in, in your approaches. Yeah, well, Jason Moore was a, a student of mine as an undergraduate, and I introduced him to the to the whole ecological analysis. He was already interested in world systems theory, but I, I introduced him to ecological theory. And then he was also, for a time, a graduate student with me, and so I introduced him to the whole literature. He's part of the of um, environmental sociology at the University of Oregon and the discussions we had, he was part of all of this analysis of the metabolic rift. And uh, and he started out writing on the metabolic rift and connecting it to world system. And at a certain point, he kind of changed and he decided, well, the, the metabolic rift theory was the problem, and which perplexed me. And he wrote criticisms of me for about seven years. And then I, I finally replied and um, I responded to it. And there were a few years where I wrote criticisms, but um, I don't really think that's um, replies to him and, and of where he was taking the theory. And But uh, I've tried to remove myself from that at this point because uh, we're going forward with the analysis. But his major criticism was, which surprised me because he'd been through all of this and this analysis himself, he suddenly decided the metabolic rift was a dualistic conception. And he, he started using the term Cartesian dualism. I don't know where he took that, maybe from Luantin and Levins's great work, Dialectical Biologist, but he started calling the metabolic rift a Cartesian dualism, which, you know, saying that it split apart, I guess, uh, society and nature, or capitalism and nature. And uh, that perplexed me because the approach is not dualistic, it's dialectical. And the analysis comes from Marx. And when he was when in the places where Moore criticizes me, I'm merely saying the things that Marx himself said. So it's really a conflict with Marx's ecology, in my view, and not my analysis. But if you if you look at um, at uh, the issue of the metabolic rift, the way we talked about it, it's um it's not just it's not just a dualistic relation of society and nature. In, in a dialectical approach, you look in terms of totality and mediation. In Marx's analysis, what's important is production which is the social metabolism which mediates between nature and society. So it isn't a dualistic conception at all. It's a dialectical conception that focuses on the mediation, the social metabolism, and whether that's alienated or, or not. And whether that alienated most social metabolism, that how it creates an ecological crisis, and and then how that affects how we go forward. And as Marx said, we have to restore that metabolism between humanity and the earth that was more sustainable previously, uh, if we are going to survive. This is um, is in Marx's analysis itself. It's in the section that. The last section of the of the chapter on machinery and modern industry, it says we have to restore the metabolism. So this is a very dialectical approach. It's it's not dualism in terms of Cartesian dualism. Descartes split um, the the mind and spirit on the one hand from the body, and he put animals sort of and which he treated as machines on one side, and then the mind was on the other side. And, and human beings were really 
about their minds, not their bodies. So he split things. But the more significant dualism is the is the neo-Kantian dualism, which um, splits uh, society and, and nature off from each other. But um, Marx and Engels were very opposed to neo-Kantian dualism, because, and that split between society and nature. They had a dialectical approach, and this is... You know what I explain? Explain how Engels responded to, in particular, to to neo-Kantianism as it developed in his day. So there's nothing dualistic about a dialectical approach. A dialectical approach is really about overcoming dualism, right? It's not about, but you you can't sort of say everything is one. You can't have a complete kind of monism, and and you can't uh, reject abstraction. Marx at the beginning of Capital talks about the power of abstraction. In order to understand the relationship between human beings and nature and human society and nature, we have to recognize that human beings and society are part of nature, just like heart is part of the body. But we, we have to actually be able to abstract human society from nature in order to analyze society and to analyze nature. And then we have to be able to kind of put them back together and understand how they mediate and the dialectical changes. That isn't a dualistic perspective. Um, that isn't a rigid dualistic perspective. It's a dialectical perspective that is in its historical and complex and is really a necessity for any kind of meaningful materialist science. I know you mentioned that Moore says that um, I emphasize the divisions and, and um, he emphasizes the, the whole and, um, and the unity. But Marx had this famous statement, which I quote in Marx's Ecology, and more quotes in Capitalism in the Web of Life, um, Capitalism in the Web of Life. And uh, Marx says something like, the whole world is unified. He's really talking about the universal metabolism in nature. He mentions metabolism as guns. The world, the universe is one, is a unity, right? But what um, is important to understand, what is hard to understand is then how it comes apart, how alienation occurs, how conflict occurs. And then the object there is, of course, to then create another unity to overcome those conflicts. It's it's like um, some people in sociology, they often say Marx is a conflict theorist, and they say he believed in conflict. Well, no, actually, he analyzed, analyzed um, class society and class conflict, but his object with socialism is actually to create a, a greater unity. The fact that you focus on the conflicts and disruptions and rifts or whatever does not mean that's the, the goal of your analysis. It's actually a necessity in our society of, of um, moving on transcending that in the form of a, of a greater unity. So I don't know. Um, Jason Moore talks about the um, web of life, and he's, he basically talks about uh, capitalism's role in unifying the web of life. He, he actually sees, I tend to think that capitalism is a, has to be seen as a disruptive force with respect to the earth system uh, because, and uh, in terms of, of what Marx called the metabolic rift. And the evidence of that is that we, we are destroying the um, environmental conditions of human existence so that we have to, and we have to face up to that and transcend it. And so the goal has to be to, to focus on the nature of 
of our ecological crisis so we can overcome it. I don't know. Um, it, I think that the, there may be less difference here than, than is made out. Um, it's a question of um, how you approach things. But I think the metabolic rift analysis is, is particularly important, what Marx introduced in that respect, precisely because it gives us a way of understanding the chasm that we're in now. It's interesting that when the um, scientists working with the Anthropocene Working Group defined the Anthropocene crisis, how did they define it? They defined it as an anthropogenic rift in the biogeochemical processes of the Earth system. That follows exactly the model that Marx introduced in his own thought, and that Marxist theorists carried forward, particularly in what I've called the second foundation of Marxist thought within the sciences um, that was so important in developing ecology, particularly in Britain. The final question before we uh, kind of wrap up for today, and thank you so much for, for that brilliant explanation. In the paper or in the lecture, you take the final thesis on Feuerbach and you take it a little bit further or bring some urgency to it. So you say the point today is not simply to understand the world, but to change it before it is too late. On that kind of question of politics and strategy, would you say there's still time to change the world? Is it not already too late? And how do we get out of that kind of capitalian age of the Anthropocene epoch? And do you think there are any kind of possible political strategies here or are those possibilities foreclosed already? I think there are all sorts of possibilities. It's not too late, but uh, we we do have to face the fact that there is now the possibility of an Anthropocene extinction event, that human survival is in question. So we wrote a, I wrote a, a piece for the July-August um, 2022, that, the last issue of Month Review, um, with Brett Clark called Socialism and Ecological Survival, which um, the whole issue actually um, had that title, and our piece was an introduction to it. But we're now at the point where we have to seriously look at questions of survival. And we went back to the 1970s when Gary Commoner and um, others, uh, Charles Anderson and, and still others, um, argued this, that issues of survival were important and that socialism was the key. And um, we have to recover that. We have to recognize that it is now a question of survival. We we have things we can do. We can survive, but capitalism is really taking us down a road of extinction at the present time. And then the science is very, very clear about this. So this isn't just some Marxist conception. The the consensus of, of world science is at this at the present time is that we are headed towards um, catastrophes, if particularly with respect to climate change, but also in terms of planetary boundaries, if we're not able to develop a more sustainable system, and that depends on the organization of our society, not simply technology. So the um, possibilities are there. In this latest issue of um, Monthly Review, we say that we have now reached a point where we have two questions of survival. One is the question of avoiding essentially going off the cliff. The science says that we're, we're going to be in very serious problems if we, we get out of the 1.5 degree increase in global average temperature mark, if we, if we get out of that pathway. Uh, we're going to cross 1.5 degrees Celsius increase in global average temperature 
according to the IPCC, no matter uh, what we do. Even the most optimistic scenario, in the most optimistic scenario, we won't pass that till till 2040. And then we, at the very end of the 21st century, we'll get back down to 1.4 degrees Celsius increase. And so that's the most optimistic scenario. The uh, second most optimistic scenario is that we'll stay well below a two degree Celsius increase, maybe hit 1.8 degree increase. The, the next three scenarios that they offer are all catastrophic to varied degrees that um, so that we will go beyond two degrees Celsius increase, but but that might bring the positive feedbacks into play to such an extent that it will propel us towards almost you know, uncontrollably towards a four degree Celsius increase. Science says would be the end of industrial civilization and even beyond that. So we, we have these definite markers and concerns at the present time, but it's still possible to act to avoid these worst outcomes. And even if we did pass two degrees Celsius, there would be things we could do. The, um, there are two questions of survival. One is, is going over the cliff or breaking the carbon budget, which means, means a disaster for future generations, even, even present generations. But there's, and so that actually raises questions of the survival of the human species. And the question of the survival of human species is now raised in, by our relation to the environment, the Earth system, in a number of ways, including nuclear weapons, but also other environmental problems, other planetary boundaries. The, um, so there's that problem of, of survival in a kind of absolute sense, in a more absolute sense. There's also the question of survival in the next few decades that's facing hundreds of millions and even billions of people because in the most optimistic IPCC scenario, there's going to be compound extreme weather events occurring all over the, the earth. Heat waves, droughts, floods, hurricanes, all of these events kind of uh, interacting with each other, affecting each other. Uh, right now we have, in this last summer, we had unprecedented, um, really unprecedented heat waves across the entire northern hemisphere from, let's say, Europe to China or from North America and Europe to China that um, are breaking records and droughts. And it's um, in France, they're so, the droughts are so bad that they, they're worried about the nuclear power plants um, being able to maintain them because of the water. But we have these um, compound extreme weather events, and this is serious. We have temperatures, wet bulb temperatures uh, in developing in India and Pakistan and elsewhere that threaten the you know, existence of, you know, ex uh, threaten human bodily existence. If you're in the shade and have plenty of water, if you, you get to the critical wet bulb temperature, you'll die within six hours when, and these things are, are developing. So we, we have really serious problems the IPCC is talking about hundreds of millions of climate migrants. And this is under the most optimistic scenario. This is when still we haven't crossed, we haven't broken the carbon budget. So we have to start organizing uh, socialism on community levels. We have to start organizing for survival, not in, in the traditional survivalist sense, but in, in a socialist sense. Um, uh, community organization. 
and the kind of things that society, a society like Cuba does, um, which is much better than at protecting its people than, than uh, most other societies on the planet. So we, um, we have that. I think that my view is that we have a situation that's really changing at the material level. Traditionally, I've thought of, of, of uh, material issues primarily in terms of economics, at least in, within the social realm. I, I thought of, of it that way. But um, the truth is that ecology addresses a material level that is deeper and is affecting all of us now. So we have to think of material, our material conditions, not only as economic, but as ecological ones. And I think that if you look at workers around the world, particularly in the global south, they're facing various crises, food crises, water crises, economic uh, crises. And you know, say if you, you don't have enough food, is that for economic reasons or is it for ecological reasons? Nowadays, it's likely to be due to both. And I think that more and more the, the working class, the workers, the, the, um, what we call the wretched of the earth, um, particularly when talking about people in the global south, um, workers in the global south, more and more they're finding that um, they're organizing a response to material conditions that are they're equally economic and ecological, and this will be less differentiated. They're struggling over the conditions of their lives, not just their wages in the factories. So I've talked about this phenomenon in terms of the environmental proletariat. And I've argued that actually I think that the, the most revolutionary moments in history are when the material conditions of, of the economy and ecology come together, impacting uh, workers. So if you look back to Engels's condition of the working class in England, it's mainly an environmental work. It's about epidemiological conditions. Um, it's about pollution, clean water. It's, I mean, it's about factory conditions too, but it's very, very, very environmental, very ecological work. And it's just as much about uh, the urban, the, the living conditions of the workers as it is about their factory conditions. So it has this sort of environmental proletariat perspective all at that time. And of course, it was coming right out of the plug plot riots and so on. If you look at, at the Russian Revolution, it was not just about economic conditions. It was about also about bread and land. You look at, at revolutions, and we have to understand the material basis of change differently in terms of both the economy and ecology, and also in our strategies, we have to recognize this in order to really address people's needs. Um, in the United States, two-thirds of the population are worried about being able to pay their mortgage or their rent next month under present conditions. But the, um, they're also worried about being able to have enough food. That's um, almost <laughs> the numbers are very, very high in terms of just um, the population that, that is, is uh, food deprived. Uh, even in the United States, which is a very rich country, we have to start thinking in terms of socialists have to start thinking as materialists who consider both ecological and economic problems and not define the working class, not define the strategies or the problems simply in terms of economy. And then we then have a whole path forward that we can address. And we, it also gives us a way of, of connecting with struggles in the global south 
having a more internationalist perspective, a more anti-imperialist perspective. All of these things, um, in my view, are connected. Thank you so much, John. This has been just so wonderful and rich and a little bit of kind of apocalyptic fear, I guess, is is good, a call to action. So I think in, in that sense, hopefully the listeners will feel inspired to organize and struggle for a better world and, a, and you know, a planet that we can actually inhabit. So just to wrap up, encourage all listeners to check out our previous episodes, to like and subscribe to the podcast on your preferred platform. You can access it uh, anywhere you, you might want to, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the HM website yeah. as well. Also, please download the paper so everyone can download uh, John's paper based on the, on the Deutsche Memorial Lecture. It will be made open access. And remember that the HM conference is back with a vengeance. After a two-year hiatus, uh, come to it. It's uh, November 10th to 13th in central London. And um, you can register uh, for that on uh, historicalmaterialism.org. Please, I encourage you to like and follow us at, uh, um, at, on Facebook, on Twitter. This is the Historical Materialism Facebook and, and Twitter. And you know, we're constantly updating that with events and news and, and sometimes memes. Uh, and you can also join us at the email list uh, on our email list at historicalmaterialism.com. And finally, just to remind you, you can subscribe to the Historical Materialism Journal. The most recent issue uh, in which John's uh, lecture was is uh, volume 30, issue 2. You can get a 25% discount if you email historicalmaterialism at soas.ac.uk. 